Hey everybody, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the gospel, especially as it is talked about at the beginning of the book of Romans. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to talk to you about something. Like for every other church, the last seven or eight months has been filled with a lot of challenges for us. And one of the unique difficulties for us and churches like ours is that we're a mobile church that normally meets in a school and that school has not been available to us for obvious reasons. And so we have had to scramble to find places to uh, do church from. This year I've preached my sermons for our Sunday service from five different locations. I did it at the school before everything was shut down. I did it at another church's offices for a little while. Thank you, Grace Chapel, for being so gracious to us. I preached from our church property. I preached from home. And uh, just last Sunday, I preached from the building that we're going to be using for the next three months, which leads me to the thing I want to talk to you about. After searching near and far, high and low, we have been blessed with the full-time 24-7 use of a church building that was sitting unused and has been sitting unused for several months. Why am I telling you this? First, I want to publicly thank God for this incredible blessing. We were running out of options and we didn't know what we were going to do when the weather turned bad because we had been meeting outside and God has really blessed us and answered our prayers in allowing us to use this building. The second reason I'm telling you this is that we would love to see you at one of our services. If you're interested in coming to one of our services, you can go to creekside.me slash church, creekside.me slash church, and there you'll be able to register for a service, plus learn about how our services are going to look and what we're doing to make them safe. The last reason I'm telling you this is that it's a unique opportunity for us as a church to have a permanent space, at least a temporary permanent space. And that has our minds and hearts just dreaming about the things that we can do. And so we are working on some special content that we would not otherwise be able to produce. And I really want to make sure that you have an opportunity to watch and listen to the content that we produce when it comes out. And so the best way to make sure that you stay in the know is to subscribe to our newsletter. And you can do that by going to creekside.me slash sign up. That's creekside.me slash sign up. But I would also encourage you to like, follow, subscribe, whatever it may be on the different social media platforms. We're especially active on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, and we would love to connect with you there. And if you connect with us, then you will be in the know when we produce and send out new content, some of that new content that we're excited about. Again, thanks for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I uh, was taking my kids the other day. I took my kids and I actually forgot my bat over there. So I'm going to ask my wife to throw me the bat. But uh, just for illustrative purposes, just chuck it. Just chuck it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Thank you. Um, So I took my kids to this park by our house the other day. And uh, we live right near a uh, an apartment complex, a big apartment complex with with uh, multiple playgrounds in it. And so we go over there and bum their playgrounds sometimes. And I've been to this one playground with my son twice recently, and I took both of my kids the other day. And it's, uh, it's kind of in the middle of a bunch of apartments, and so it kind of sits in the center. 
And, and it is amazing to go there because it is like walking back into the 80s. Like it's so different than, than what I'm used to with my kids and how my friends, you know, kind of shelter and uh, protect their kids. Because you show up at this, at this playground and it's, it's kids of all ages from like there's a one-year-old out there with a, I don't know, maybe a 12-year-old sister, maybe. Uh, and, and there's a four-year-old that's like climbing 10 feet high. And I, I got there, weird, weird Thing. This kid looks at me and he goes, my mommy and daddy died. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And another kid walks up and goes, his parents are alive. He's making it up. And he's like, yeah, I made it up. It's a four-year-old kid saying this to me. I'm like, oh my goodness. And then that same four-year-old who, who made friends with Hazel and Hudson as the, as the afternoon went on, he's like looking at this bench that sits there. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I had to clean this the other day. I was like, why? He's like, ah, oh, my brother and I, we rode all over it. This kid, these kids are out there graffitiing, and, and it just reminded me of, of my childhood in the 80s, like when we used to be able to have fun without our parents saying, don't scrape your knee or whatever, right? And, and I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm actually thinking back to my childhood, and, uh, and it reminded me of this, this moment, and, and as soon as it reminded me of it, I was like, there's got to be a way to shove that story into the sermon, because it's one, of my, it's one of my great moments. And so I grew up, you know, outside every day playing wiffle ball or whatever, uh, and, and sports always served me well, because I noticed this thing that happened the other day with the 80s kids, and, and immediately, it, it, you know, it was like taking me back. Hazel started to say to the kids to try to make a friend and they started to say back, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And then they would jump off a higher thing or, you know, do something more daring. And I was like, man, that's like just growing up and playing sports and like, it's all about, can you do what I can do? There's this comparison game that makes you a friend. And it just took me back to my childhood and playing sports. And this, this one single memory of, of uh, uh, it's a baseball memory, really. I, I, my mom had moved, and we moved frequently. Uh, I moved frequently with my mother, and I was probably eight years old or something like that, and I show up at this new neighborhood, and, and like, I think we're still moving in, like the moving truck or the truck that had all our stuff is, is uh, you know, still outside, and like this whole group of kids I'm telling you, in my memories, it's just like the movie Sandlot, comes up to me, and they all have baseball gloves and baseballs, and, and I don't know how it all went down exactly. It's one of the things, if God lets us see our past in heaven, I'm gonna, this is going to be one of those moments, but, but in my memory, they're being rude to me, like they're being mean, new kid on the neighborhood, they're puffing their chest, and I remember there being like a ringleader of this group, and he wasn't nice, like in the movie The Sandlot, like he wasn't trying to involve me, he was just being a jerk, and, and I, you, I grew up playing baseball, I was a college baseball player, and they all have baseball stuff, and like this is, this is my moment, and I look at this kid, and, and it's probably not as cool as this in reality, but in my head, I, I tell this kid, I say, throw the ball as hard as you can throw the ball at me. And I have no glove on. And they're like, what are you talking about? Throw the ball as hard as you can throw the ball. Like, I'm not going to throw the ball at you. I was like, just throw it as hard as you can at me. And he throws this ball at me and I catch it with my bare hand. I know. Whoa. Yeah. I told you I was looking for a reason. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but, but I really want a reason to tell you this story. And I stick it with my bare hand and instantly instantly I had friends in that neighborhood. Like they took me to the local sandlot. It wasn't a sandlot. It was just a little league baseball field. But, but I was like in from that moment on. And, and here's what that story illustrates and what I watched with these 80s kids the other day and, and my very 2020 kids who are, you know, protected and never alone anywhere. Uh, but uh, I, I, 
I witnessed this just very human thing that we are constantly playing a comparison game and we look at people's abilities or lack of abilities, their successes and their failures, and in large part in our society, we determine whether that uh, lets them be in or out, whether, whether we're going to connect with them or we're not going to connect with them, whether they're going to connect with us or not going to connect with us. That's just how we're wired as humans. And I think what happens is that we sometimes treat Christianity and the gospel, the very thing that we're talking about in this sermon series, we treat the gospel the same way. We think that it is for certain types of people. We may not vocalize this, and, and especially if you're not a Christian, you may think it's that Christianity and the, and the story of Jesus is for certain types of people, but it's not really for other kinds of people. And sometimes as Christians, I think we're guilty of, of, of thinking that we're better than people and we almost forget our need for the gospel and the story of Jesus that I'll tell in a few minutes again uh, but we kind of forget our need because because we've caught the baseball and we we think we're doing a pretty good job of life and uh, over the last couple of weeks we've we've seen some really important things in the series and I'll, I'll get to those in just one second but but today here's here's the big idea and it's it's such a simple big idea I wanted it to sound cooler than this but I think just saying it like this is so important the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins that's that's what we're going to see in our passage of scripture today the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. Last week we saw that we don't need to be ashamed of any of the gospel because all of the gospel has the power to save. We don't need to be ashamed of any of the gospel because all of the gospel has the power to save. In week one of this series we saw that the gospel is good news. It's good news and sometimes we convolute it and, and we cover all that up with you know the, the ins and outs and the details but at the very heart of the story of Jesus you know the Bible makes so clear that it is good news and it is good news for everybody. But last week, as we talked about how the gospel is good news for everybody, uh, because it has all of the gospel is good news for everybody, because it has the power to save everybody, there was this like list of sins. And we talked about them not in detail. I didn't think that that was the heart of the passage, but we talked about this list of sins. And if you paid attention, maybe you went home, maybe you read it, probably not, but maybe you did. And, and you thought, well, I think we do this well, at least I'm not like that, right? And if you're not a Christian, if you're a person who has not accepted Jesus as your savior, who has not uh, embraced the gospel story, then, then you might have heard what I was talking about last week and said, well, you know, I'm not wicked in the ways that that described. And, you know, I do have love and I do have mercy. And like, that's, that's not indicative of who I am as a person. And for those of us who are Christians, we're like, well, I'm not like that anymore. And, and what I think can happen is that we can begin to think, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm a little better. At least I can, you know, catch a ball. At least I have the ability to jump a little higher than the other person. At least, at least I'm not like them. And what happens, I believe, is that, that over time, we begin, we begin to forget. We forget how the gospel is for us. Because we grow and we develop and we become more like Jesus. And over time, we forget how important the gospel is for us. But then there's other people I know who aren't Christians in part, because this is the thing you hear. They're in part not Christians because, because they don't think they're good enough. And they play the comparison game in the complete opposite way. They're like, well, I would become a Christian. I would embrace the gospel if, you know, I was a little bit better, if I had grown up in a different way, if my parents, you know, had, had said nicer things to me, then maybe the gospel would be for me. But what Paul writes in, in 
Uh, Romans 2, 1 through 11 is a continuation of, of chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 that we looked at last week. And specifically, he's talking to Jewish people who believe that their special place in human history, as far as their relationship to God goes, is going to be good enough for them to be saved. And, and they're looking at the gospel in some ways, and some of them are, are thinking, believing, well, that's not really for me because I'm, I'm better than other people. But in talking to this group of people, what Paul does for us is he, he shows us just so clearly that the gospel is for everyone because everyone has sinned. And, and so if you're a person this morning that maybe has forgotten how much you need the story of Jesus. Maybe you just don't feel it anymore. Maybe you're not as excited about it as you used to be. Or maybe you're a person who has never embraced the gospel. You've never embraced Christianity because you just don't think it's for you because you're better or worse or whatever it might be. I think Paul has important words in Romans 2, 1 through 11 for you. And here's how it begins. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? This passage is interesting and and Romans kind of in general for like the first 11 chapters is interesting because Paul doesn't address the people he's writing the letter to specifically. He actually seemingly in the language goes like a roundabout way in order to avoid saying you to these people and talking to them directly. And I think what he's doing is he is inviting every person who might read it, whether you know they're doing it right or doing it wrong, to put themselves into the passage and, and then ask, you know, how does this apply to me? How how do I fall into the categories and the ideas that Paul is writing about here? And I think that's especially important here. As we examine, are we really recognizing how important the gospel is for us? Are we recognizing that the gospel is for us because we are sinners? Here's the point of Paul's overall passage, Romans 2, 1 through 11. Let me just give you the the main point. It's simply this. God does not show favoritism. That's what Paul's big idea is in these 11 verses. God does not show favoritism. And, And that's an important big idea because I think we we do seem to think that God plays favorites, whether it's because we grew up in a certain kind of family or whether it's because we grew up in the United States of America. That's a big one we see, right? Like we're, we're inherently special, but, but God does not play favorites. And let me tell you where this is all going. We're gonna move there in the next couple weeks and kind of finish there in the next couple weeks in this series at the beginning of Romans. It, it's simply this, everyone is a savior who needs to be saved. Every, sorry, everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved. Everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved. That's where Paul's moving. You're going to see it in Romans 3. Everyone is a sinner that needs to be saved. And here Paul is laying the groundwork for that and saying that there are no excuses. Last week he wrote the same thing, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that People are without excuse. So Paul writes, if you were 
here last week, if you're paying attention, you know this, but if you, if you weren't, if you forgot, you know, then you don't know this. Paul in chapter one is talking to people who are godless. They don't believe in God. They don't care about God. They're rejecting God outright. There's no connection to God. They do not care anything about God. And he says, you're without excuse because you should be able to see that there's a God in creation. If you can see that, then you can see the need for a savior. But in chapter two, he's talking to a bunch of religious people who grew up in a nation where God was kind of embraced and you kind of grew up believing in a God. And and he's looking at these people and he's saying exactly the same thing. You, even though you grew up religious, even though you grew up in a Christian home, even though you grew up in church, you, you, you also have no excuse not to embrace the gospel. You don't have an excuse either. So he says to the godless, those who reject God outright, and to those who are religious and who think they have the favor of God, you don't have an excuse when it comes to the embrace, embracing of the gospel, the story of Jesus in Christianity. Uh, the way he describes this is basically that when you judge, this is kind of the idea, when you judge, you are, you are recognizing in, in, in yourself that there, there's some kind of universal morality. When you look at another person and you, you say, hey, they're wrong for doing that, that makes them deserve condemnation, they deserve judgment, then, then what you're saying about yourself is, is, hey, there is sin, there is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is bad, there is a universal and not simply you know, local morality. There's a universal morality. Everybody is in some ways held to the same standard. I think one of the greatest Christian books ever written is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And man, if you aren't a Christian or you are a Christian and you haven't read that book, it's like you just need to read the book. And one of the the great things that C.S. Lewis does for in that book and, and frankly for Christians everywhere for all time, and a lot of people just copy him in, in his kind of apologetics in that book, as he lays forth the groundwork for a universal right and wrong that isn't based on culture, that isn't based on feeling, that isn't based on what you tend to believe or whatever. It's just there is right and wrong. And, and he talks about this in like a variety of ways, like when there's quarreling between two people. You know, both of those people believe that they're right and the other person is wrong. And, and so you see the universal morality in that. And he talks about how it's obvious that an objective uh, moral standard exists in the world. He talks about mistreatment, right? When we're mistreated, we think it's wrong. If somebody walked up to you and slapped you in the face, you wouldn't go, I don't know, like if that was good or bad, you know? I mean, I'm not sure. It depends on how they felt today. It's wrong, and we all know that. We talk about how we measure value systems. One value, he talks about one value system is better and one is worse. We all can see that. He he talks about how we attempt to improve our morality. We try to grow morally as people. That's something that we do. We try to train that into our children. He talks about reasoning over moral issues. And he talks about feeling a sense of obligation over moral matters. Sometimes you feel guilty because you didn't live up to the moral standard that you see in the world. And he talks about how we make excuses. And this points to the idea of sin. Like whenever you make an excuse for your wrong behavior, you, you in some way say there is wrong behavior. And it's not just because of how I feel or what the culture is telling me. It's, it's some standard that is bigger. It's universal. And as Christians, we believe it comes from God. And in all that, the one that, that I think is, is best in C.S. Lewis, at least easiest for me to see, is, is what I kind of already mentioned. If somebody slapped you in the face, you'd think it's wrong. Uh, I think he says it like, 
like this. I didn't go back and check this week, but, but if somebody steals from you, if somebody takes your bag while you're on a bus, you don't go, you don't, you don't go like, I don't know if that was good or bad, right or wrong. You just know. You just know, like they did something that was wrong and you feel the need for justice. And I believe at the beginning of this passage, Romans 2, 1 through 3, what Paul is getting at is, is pretty much that idea. He doesn't go into all the ins and outs and go as deep as C.S. Lewis does. But he's saying when you judge somebody, you recognize a universal standard that you yourself have not lived up to. I can see how true this is because I know people outside of Christianity uh, I can think of people right now outside of Christianity who hold all the people around them to really high standards and are very, very annoyed, angry, frustrated when people don't live to those standards. And some of those standards are I absolutely believe in. I think they're in totally in line with Christianity and the universal morality that I see in the world. It's not just them saying like, Anna, like, you know, that you chew with your mouth open or whatever. It's like real things, Right. And yet they, and this is what Paul's getting at, are not recognizing the sinfulness of themselves. We have a tendency as humans to to recognize sin in other people, even if we don't believe in the idea of sin, to recognize sin in other people, but to ignore it in ourselves. Uh, One commentary, the message of Romans, which is a great commentary on the book of Romans, says, uh, we even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning others and their faults, and so doing, we excuse ourselves. We, we, we gain a satisfaction. We can condemn somebody else and, and at the same time look at ourselves and, and go, you know what, we can, be, we can make an excuse for that. There's a reason that I acted that way. There's a, I mean, I, you know, it was their fault. If they wouldn't have treated me like this, if I would have grown up differently, you know, then I wouldn't have done those things. But Paul is cutting right through that and saying, when you see it in somebody else, you ought to recognize it in your own life. In your own life. We make these excuses because, because it allows us, as one author says, to, to continue to have our own self-respect but also hold on to our sin, right? As long as we can excuse our own behavior, then we don't have to think about what it means to leave that behavior behind. And, and so we look at others and we say, you are doing something wrong, but I, I am okay. And Paul says, when that happens, when you see the sin in someone else, then you can see so clearly that you are a sinner and therefore you are without excuse when it comes to, to embracing Christianity, to becoming a Christian, to, to recognizing and believing the story of Jesus. Everybody deserves judgment. Now that sounds like really bad news and kind of the whole premise of this series is, is that the gospel is good news. And even when I say the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins, you're like, well, that doesn't sound so nice. But here's what Paul says next, and I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. I just decided that this week, but I I think it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It wasn't before this week, but I love it. Romans 2, 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, that's God, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Man, this is a really powerful and important verse. It's a question. Paul is asking self-righteous people if they are willing to, uh, his word, show contempt for the 
the richness, the wealth of God's goodness towards them. And he talks about how that goodness is seen uh, in their kindness and their forbearance and their patience. Forbearance is the only word that we don't use very often. I think I don't use it very often in normal everyday life. And, and it's just a word that means restraint. And so Paul's idea here is that God is pouring out the wealth, the riches, that's the word, the riches of his goodness or kindness upon us by holding back on punishing us and calling us to repentance. He's calling us to repentance. This reminds me of the story of Jonah. You may know the story of Jonah, at least the part where he ends up in a whale, but just, you know, for the people who don't, it's important. Just Jonah is a a Jewish man who's kind of self-righteous. He, he, he looks at God and he recognizes that the Israelites have a special relationship with God and, and he really likes that special relationship and doesn't want other people to be able to enter into a relationship with God, especially, especially the Israelites' enemies, one of which is the Ninevites. And God says, go to the Ninevites and tell them to repent of their sin. And Jonah, that's when he flees, gets on a boat. There's a storm ends up in the water, whale swallows him, the part you know. And then he gets spit back on a dry land and, and, then, and then he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the world's worst sermon. He's like, three days, Nineveh's gonna get destroyed. And, and then these people repent. They repent. And we'll talk about that word in a second. They, they repent of their sins. They do exactly what God's calling them to do with the world's worst sermon. And then Jonah's mad because he didn't want them to repent. And he says this thing that I just love this verse because we look at the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament sometimes, we think like, oh, God used to be so much more mean or whatever. But listen to what Jonah says. It says, he prayed to the Lord, that's Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah is like, God, I knew that you were gonna hold back on punishing these people. I knew that you were kind and gracious and patient. And if, all, if they would just repent, then you weren't gonna punish them. And I, I wanted you to punish them. And so he's, I love it because he's mad at God. And yet he's recognizing these incredibly awesome and important truths about the character and nature of God, that he's slow to anger and rich in love, and, and you know, to connect it to Romans, that he, is, that he is patient and he's holding back on punishing people because he wants people to repent. Paul doesn't talk about repentance a lot. If you're a Christian and you know kind of repentance and the idea of repentance, if you think, well, that seems like it's in the Bible a lot, it's because of what's written in the Gospels mainly. Like Jesus talks about repentance. The Gospel writers talk about repentance. John the Baptist was out calling people to repentance. Jesus called people to repentance. But Paul doesn't talk about it a lot in his writing. But here, as he's talking about the the kindness of God in holding back on punishing humanity, he uses the word repent and repent is, a, is so important and here's the simple meaning of repent we think of I just let me say what I think people think of when they think of repentance I think a lot of people think it means to feel bad about something that they've done they they equate guilt or sorrow over sin with repentance but biblically that's not that's not at all the idea there's no emotion involved in repentance it doesn't require any feeling to repent it's it's simply this it's a changing of mind that leads to a changing of life a changing of mind that leads to a changing of life it doesn't matter how you feel or you know how convicted you are or whatever it might be the the bible and God through the, his word is calling us to change our minds specifically about our sin in a way that leads us to change our life. 
the New International Commentary in the New Testament, another great commentary, uh, talks about how there's a bunch of ideas kind of that, that the scriptures connect to repentance. And then, it, and then it says, in fact, all of these ideas, and this is why I'm reading it to you, listen to all these ideas that are part of Christian repentance. In fact, all of these ideas, returning to God, changing one's mind, remorse for sin, and the understanding that such things are necessary dimensions of converting are all within the semantic field of this term. And so it's a big, huge idea, right? Whether it's giving up your sin or turning in your mind and recognizing how great God is or recognizing your need for a savior all of this is kind of incorporated in this this one single word repent repent we need to repent and what Paul is saying here is hey look nobody 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 is okay apart from God and there are no excuses for not embracing Christianity and then Paul says here's the deal here's the deal we see that God is kind, not in just not paying attention to your sin, letting you stay in your sin, letting you do whatever you want, but instead in waiting and holding back and not punishing you so that you have the opportunity to turn from that sin. Now listen, remember last week, you, 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 may, not, you may not have been with us, but last week we talked about how God's punishment, his wrath in chapter one, wasn't wrath like we sometimes think of it like hell and fire and brimstone, all that stuff. God's wrath in chapter one of Romans was God letting people dive deeply into their sin, just saying, fine, if that's what you wanna do, and I compared it to me just saying to my kids, ah, you know what, do whatever you wanna do. You wanna play in the freeway, go ahead, right? Like that's, that's not good parenting that is me punishing in some ways a very terrible punishment that I would never do but but that's me punishing and, and here so Paul said that like hey God's wrath has been poured out by him letting people dive deeper into their sins but now in chapter two Paul comes back and says hey but by the way God is holding out on ultimate wrath eternal wrath and he's holding out out of his goodness and kindness for you so that you have the opportunity to repent and turn to him. Listen to what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's talking to Christians who are like, I want Jesus to come back. I, I wanna get to heaven. I'm done with everything going on in this earth. And I think so many of us feel that right now. And, and here, here Peter's writing, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus has not come back to take us home yet because he wants all people to repent. God is showing his kindness to us by not returning, showing his kindness to the world by not returning right now. He's waiting. He's hoping that all people will embrace him through repentance. Now let me talk about the idea of repentance, the changing in mind and the change uh, that leads to a changing in life as far as it's concerned with the rest of scripture, what Paul says throughout the New Testament, what, what we see in the gospel story. And that is simply this, that repentance is connected to the great story of the gospel. And I, I tell this story every week, but I'm gonna especially tell it in this sermon series, which is all about the gospel. You have to put this in the context of everything Paul is saying. Paul is saying to people, you are without ex an excuse, you are a sinner, period. Whether you're self-righteous, religious, or totally godless, atheist, you've rejected God, no matter where you fall on any spectrum, you are without excuse because you have sinned. 
But here is the good news, right? Jesus came out of heaven to earth. He lived perfectly and sinlessly. He didn't need to make any excuses because he never did anything wrong. And at the end of that sinless life, he died for your sins. He paid the punishment of your sins. He ransomed you so that you might come into a relationship with God and have all of your sins forgiven. All you need to do is place your faith in him. You need to accept that he is the only savior of the world and he is your Lord. You must believe and then give him your life. And if you'll do that, if you'll do that, then you come into a relationship with God and you have new peace and new joy and new hope. But one of the great things that stands in the way of that is that people are unwilling to repent, right? Uh, they want to hold on to their sin. They want to keep living the way that they want. They don't want to have to make any changes. They don't want to have to think about the repercussions of God's existence or if that story is true. And so they just keep doing what they're doing without ever letting their minds be changed. In fact, lots of people are unwilling ever to even to read the Bible or explore whether Christianity is true because they don't want their minds changed because they don't want their lives changed. They want to keep going the way that they're going. And so in Instead of embracing the gospel that I've just given you, they continue to make excuses for the sin that they see in themselves through recognizing it in other people. And Paul looks at them, he looks at you, he looks at you, and he says, wait a minute. God's calling out of sin and calling you to change your mind and give your life to him isn't because he is some wrathful, angry God that doesn't love you or doesn't like you or doesn't want you to be happy or whatever it might be. It's because he's gracious and kind and loving and he's inviting you. He's, He's holding back on punishing. He's inviting you into a relationship with him and all you have to do is change your mind about him in a way that causes you to change your life by giving your life to him through faith and accepting the gospel story that I just preached to you. See, Paul is, is saying in the middle of this, like, hey, it's, it's not bad that God's calling out sin in your life. It's good because it means that he is giving you an opportunity to embrace him as, as your savior. No matter what you've thought about the gospel before today, the story of Christianity, I just let me just say it again. The gospel is for everyone because everyone sins, and that is good news. We see the word sin, we think, well, that sounds bad, right? Like, I don't like sin, but, but the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. That's good news because the gospel is for everyone. Even if you are a sinner, no matter how much sin you have done, no matter how many bad things you've done, no matter how terrible the things you have done are, the gospel is for you. Because each and every person in this room, everybody watching me online, we've all done it too. We have all sinned. And yet Jesus invited us into a relationship with him. Whether you feel like, I mean, you play that comparison game, right? Like you, 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 you're like, hey, I can catch the ball. I can hit the ball. I can kind of live up to some standard that our culture has set for us or that I've set for me. I'm better than the guy I work with. I'm better than the people around me. You might be on that side and you're like, you know what? I don't need to repent, but the gospel is for everyone. It's for you because you've sinned. But on the other side, you're like, well, I swing and miss all the time, right? Like, I'm not good enough if you knew how badly I messed up. I mean, I'm worse than the end of the World Series last night. That only makes sense to some of you. But, like, that's me when it comes to spiritual things. Like, I'm that bad. I'm horrible. I'm terrible. There's no way God could invite me in. But, but the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. And, yeah, you're a sinner, but the gospel is for you. And that's the point of what Paul is writing here. It's the point of what Paul is writing here. 
And so repent, give your life to Jesus. That's, that's the point here. And there's an alternative that Paul gives us in Romans 2.5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul basically says here, like, look, by, by not accepting the grace and the kindness of God, placing your faith in him, by holding off and, and testing his patience, you're not doing yourself any favor. Instead, you're just, you're just storing up for yourself wrath. Eventually, God's patience is going to run out. We may not like that. I don't think that's the, my most favorite part of this gospel story, but that's the reality. Eventually, God's patience is going to run out. And if you haven't repented, then all of that sin that you've held on to is simply being stored up and God will judge you. His wrath will be poured out on you. Then Paul finishes with kind of this, I don't know, this weird thing. It says in verses six through 11, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who who reject the truth and follow evil, evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Big idea, right? He ends with it again. He starts with it. He ends with it. God does not show favoritism. Now, what's so weird here is there's this chiastic structure in, the, in this passage, which it's just picture like a pyramid of sentences, right? And, and what's weird is that usually in, when Paul does this, he puts the most important idea in the very center, but here he does it like backwards. It's an inverted pyramid, if you will. And he puts the big ideas on the outside and then uses the middle sentences to explain those. And it's God does not show favoritism. God does not play favorites. Whether you grew up in the right place or, you know, have done certain things, God is not playing favorites. The gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. And then in verses 7 through 10, he elaborates on these things and he says some really important things. And here's kind of the big idea, uh, what we seek, what we do, and where we are going. That's what he talks about. I'll let you look at that later. Go home and read it. But, but what we seek, what we do, and, and what we're doing. But basically, he lays forth two choices in that. He says there's two choices about where we're going, and that's kind of going to dictate how you live your life. You either have eternal life or you have eternal wrath eternal life or eternal wrath and right there at the beginning he has this you know this very important statement god god is going to repay each person according to what they have done now man if you if you have any theological background at all like instantly you're like wait a minute like that doesn't sound like what i know of scripture because as christians we believe this incredible thing that no amount of good work can save you that you become a Christian not by doing certain things. That's Paul's whole point here, right? Not by acting a certain way, not by, by reaching some standard, right? But, but through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And yet here, Paul says, God's gonna repay people for what they do. And in fact, weirdly, I didn't, I didn't know this before studying for the sermon, but, but this is like a repeated thing throughout the entirety of scripture. It's a quote from Psalm 62, 12, and it's repeated in Proverbs 24, 12 as a question. Uh, it's uh, built upon in Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Second Chronicles. They kind of elaborate on it and build some like big kind of, you know, uh, end times kind of feeling language around it. And then uh, we get to the New Testament and Jesus says it and then Paul repeats it. And it's like, wait, what is the, I mean, we're saved by faith alone, but these guys are saying we'll be 
judge based on our works. And I think, again, the message of Romans says it so beautifully here. Justification or salvation, we'll talk about justification in the next series, but, but salvation or justification is indeed by faith, but judgment will be according to works. I love that. If you're headed towards eternal life, then you can know that's because of your faith and your faith alone and what Jesus did only. But if you're headed towards judgment, it's gonna be based on all of the things that you have done wrong. Now there's some things within this that are really important for us. If you go, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't even have to think about this verse anymore. Well, uh, let me just say there's some things that apply here to you. The first thing, first though, for you who aren't Christians, you can't earn your way into salvation. You just, you just can't. You're without excuse. There's no amount of good works or good deeds or helping people that is ever going to earn you a relationship with God or get you into heaven. It's just not gonna happen. You need a place, you need to repent, you need to place your faith in Jesus, you need to become a Christian, you need to embrace what Jesus did for you on the cross and the gospel story. But there's a couple ideas for Christians too, like one, faith without works is dead. I think that's pretty clearly seen here. That's what James 2.18 says, faith without works is dead. And I think there's this prevailing idea out there that, that repentance looks simply like believing certain things mentally. Like there are lots of people that I know that, that believe that Jesus came and died for sins. But faith isn't simply just thinking something is true. Faith is, is a changing of mind that leads to a, a changing in life, right? Repentance, that's what it is. And, and the changing of mind, maybe they have that part, but not in a way that's led them to give their lives to Jesus, to become Christians, to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to declare that Jesus is not only Savior, but also King, King of all, and he deserves all of our, our lives, our worship, our honor, our glory, all of it should be aimed at him. I think there's a lot of people in this world, especially in our country, who believe the things of Jesus but are not actually Christians because they've never given themselves to Christ. They've never embraced him as their own. Somebody just sent me their testimony the other day. A while back, we asked for, for video testimonies. We shared some of those on Easter, in fact. And a, a person that, uh, that, that uh, was in our church at the time, and since moved away, I feel like I'm now giving them away, but uh, I didn't ask for permission to share. Uh, but it's a great story, so hopefully they'll give me permission to share it eventually. But they sent me an email just this week and said, hey, I wrote all this out uh, when you asked us to do testimonies, but I never recorded a video and I never sent it to you. And I said, well, I wish you would have because it was an amazing story, but... But basically what they described is a life that looked devoted to Jesus. Like they did everything right. They went to church. They studied theology. They were nice to people. They donated money. It's like a story that preachers tell but don't actually have a story in mind. They said, I was doing everything. And then one day there was a sermon and I have no idea what was said, but I realized that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And I walked down the aisle, which was embarrassing, they told me, because like, because they were serving in the church and, and they walked down the aisle at, during an altar call and they really gave their life to Christ. You're without excuse, you need to give your life to Christ. And when you do, you know, you should see a change. And then there's this other idea that I think is, you know, important. Even as Christians, what we do matters. Uh, we forget about this as Christians often, but we're gonna sit before Jesus at his judgment throne and, and he won't decide based on our works, whether we're in or we're out. But the way I picture it is when I look at my kids and I say, hey, we need to talk about something. And I don't know if this is how it's gonna look, but we're gonna sit before Christ in heaven and, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're in some way gonna recognize the sins that we committed. And so even if you are a Christian, 
we still should be trying to live our lives in a way that is good and reflects the Jesus that we serve. But the big idea is that the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. And, and I just, I read this thing. Um, I don't know, this is how I'm gonna finish. And I don't know if it's any good, but, uh, but it made sense to my head so you can find out with me. I, I read this, this old playwright, like, you know, thousand years ago playwright. And he said this thing. He said, never introduce a God, a God for him into the story unless the story is so messed up that there's no other option anymore. And when I read it, I thought about aliens. Like you ever watching a movie and you're like, what is going on? This, how is this all happening? Like a sci-fi movie. And it's like, there's, there's no way they can bring this back. And it turns out you're right. There's no way they can bring it back because all of a sudden it's like, oh, the aliens did it. You know, do you know what I mean? Like maybe that's just me, but, but there's just this, this crazy excuse that seemingly has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It just comes in because you think like, well, when the person was making the movie, they got it so convoluted and so messed up. They wrote such a bad story that the only easy out was like, well, the aliens did it, you know, and they just introduced the spaceship at the end of the movie. I think the guy's right, right? Like, unless things are so messed up, you don't bring in the aliens. And unless things are too messed up that they can't be repaired, you don't bring in God. But the gospel tells us that things were so messed up that there was no other way we could be saved except for God coming down into human history. What Paul is describing for us here is that the story of humanity is so messed up that God had to come down and fix it. The story of our lives is so messed up that there's no way it can be fixed apart from God. And the gospel, the good news said that that is okay. We can recognize how incredibly messed up our own lives are because we also can look at scripture and see that there is a savior. God entered into human history so that it might be fixed. But it is no good to act like our story's not messed up because all it does is prevent us from giving our lives to Jesus. Instead, we should all, whether we've been Christians forever or whether you're not a Christian at all, we should all recognize how messed up we are, how sinful we are. And we should remember that the gospel is for everyone because everyone sins. And then we should embrace the gospel through repentance and faith, give our lives to Jesus. Let me pray that we'll do that and if we've done it, that we remember how great it is that we were able to do it. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you, God, um, have offered us such an incredible gift in the gospel story, Lord. You, you showed up when all was lost, when there was no hope for us, when it was so messed up that, that there was no way out. And that's the story of all of our lives. You, and you showed up, Jesus, and you died for our sins. And man, I know as a, as a longtime Christian that I, I can be as guilty as anybody thinking, well, at least I'm not like that. And I forget that I need the gospel every day just as much as anybody needs the gospel, Lord. And I pray for me, I pray for our church, I pray for, for even just people outside of our church that are watching online right now, I pray, God, that they would know that the gospel is for them. And, and God, whether that means they give their lives to you, that right now you just whisper in their ear, Lord, you just whisper to them that they need you, God, that they're sinners and they're without excuse. And, and whether it's that, God, and, and, and they embrace that this morning, 
And I pray that they would. I pray that they wouldn't let this moment pass, that they wouldn't skip by this moment, whether it's that, God, or whether it's people who have been Christians forever and, and God, they've become self-righteous in their hearts. They, they, they've forgotten how great it is that they have a Savior, whatever. I just pray that you'd excite them this morning about your gospel again, Lord, and that all of us would, would leave this church service knowing that the gospel is for everyone, including us, God, because all of us have sinned. I pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.